Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. You know, almost every single day, I feel like I'm tweeting out a story by our guest today, Jonathan Chait, writer for New York Magazine, a prolific author. So welcome back on the podcast, Jonathan. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. So how many columns a week do you write? <laughs> I write almost once a day. I also have a newsletter. Yeah. Um, so the the frequent the published fre- frequency online is has tailed off a little bit because I put more of it into the newsletter. But um, yeah. you know, if you if you join feeling. New York Magazine, you can read my work online and and also get the newsletter. Well, of course, there's no shortage of things to talk about it or write about, as as you know. And I, I feel that I, I I've given short shrift to what's becoming one of my favorite stories of the day: the Jared Kushner uh, deal with the Saudi Arabians, where even though the Saudis actually knew that this might be a really bad idea to yeah. give Jared Kushner $2 billion. He's really, it's almost, it's almost like a comic opera here. Um, they decided to give him, you know, the son-in-law of the former president. And, uh, you know, it's all, it's almost too easy to say, but Hunter Biden's laptop, but I mean, right. it's just the sort of the nakedness of the trading in on your connection, the sort of, you know, Saudis placing a bet, you know, the orange God King may be coming back. We, we might want to we might want to keep uh, Jared uh, close in our circle here. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, they're both people who are clearly cashing in on their proximity to power to make money for themselves. The important difference is that Kushner actually has something to trade. Like Kushner actually is an important advisor or was yeah. an important advisor to the president, is currently, as far as we know, a, a still an advisor to the leading Republican. It might be again, whereas Hunter Biden would never came within a million miles of, of any important decision as far as it, as far as we know. What's interesting about this, as I was reading through the details of this story, the way that MBS is reaching out to Jared Kushner, and again, it's not terribly subtle what's going on here. Is that you, you would think there's there's kind of a, a two step that people go through uh, in their minds about the decision making process, and I'm talking about Jared. Mm-hmm. No, number one, people might say, um, "I'm not going to do this because it would be wrong," right? right. That that voice of conscience, which clearly right. does not apply to people like Jared Kushner. But then there's that other, you know, that second step, which is, boy, you know, I shouldn't do this because there's no way I'd get away with it. It looks so bad. I really yeah. don't want to cut a $2 billion deal to do something that I'm clearly not qualified to do with one of the world's great monsters at a time when, you know, monsters are not, you know, getting the best public relations, but Kushner just doesn't give a shit. It's like, it's, just, it's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do it because I'm going to take the cash and of course I'll get away with it. And I don't care how it looks. Well, what accountability is there, right? I mean, the, the liberal and mainstream right. media already hate him, so he probably figures out he zeroed out with them. Um, he he would, in theory, run the risk of of getting problems with conservative media, but we know in reality, and I think he he knows pretty well, they're not going to hold him accountable. They don't they don't care. Well, I, I agree with both of that. So let's just talk about some of the things that you've written about recently, including this vote the other day where. Six members of the House, six Republicans, voted against a resolution uh, involving war crimes, and you described it as the the House GOP's pro-Russian war crimes caucus, the six hardcore Putin stands. So is that a—I guess the question is, Jonathan, is is that good news or bad news? Is it bad news that there are six elected Republicans willing to take that vote, or is it good news that there are only six Republicans who are willing to go that far for Vladimir Putin? Yeah, I think I think in a way it's it's good news. I mean, you can sort of track the 
concentric circles of of Russophilia in the Republican caucus, right? You have the 63 Republicans, which is 10 times as many, um, voted no on a non-binding resolution affirming support for NATO. That's definitely bad news. Right. That's bad news. That's a that's a larger number. But, um, you know, at least most of them were willing to just, you know, let the government write down the war crimes. Um, they wouldn't necessarily condemn the war crimes or do anything about the war crimes, but they would be willing to allow the war crimes to be recorded. It was really the six that 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 I think you could sort of compare that number to the to the larger number and get a sense of of where the seams are on the on the right, in the far right, in the far, far, far right in the in the Republican caucus. And yet no one has broken with Trump on all of this. I think this is an interesting uh, phenomenon at the moment where you, you have the polls would suggest the Republican base is is anti-Putin. The vast yep. majority of elected officials uh, have taken pretty strong anti-Putin stands. Um, you still have, though, uh, the the entertainment wing of the Republican Party, uh, some of the yep. highest profile figures in Trump world who are carrying water for Putin. But and as a result, kind of Mike Pence did. That was interesting. Tell me about Pence. Yeah, I mean, I, it seemed like Mike Pence's whole plan was to attach himself to Donald Trump yeah. um, and and not allow any daylight between them. And 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 I think at some point, it wasn't on January sixth. It wasn't even immediately after January sixth. But it took a while to sort of set into him that you know the hang Mike Pence people were not going to nominate <laughs> yes. Mike Pence. You weren't going to go from hang him to nominate him. That just was too far for them to travel. So he needed. You know, he needed to find his way to some other part of the party, and and his only scenario for being president was to was to cultivate them. So he's he's trying to to create a little bit of daylight, and he did it on Russia and Putin. And and one thing that interests me is that Ron DeSantis, who really does seem to be like the other main candidate who might mm-hmm. run against Trump and has a chance to win, has not distanced himself on Russia. He just hasn't said anything about this subject at all. Do you think that Ron DeSantis would run against Donald Trump? Yes. Really? Because that okay, because you know that that I have to admit that I I wrote something a couple of months ago predicting that DeSantis would blink, but he hasn't done it. So that may mm-hmm. actually turn out to be my worst take of the year. So so tell me how that plays out in your mind. Well, look, I I I need to qualify that. I'm not yeah, sure. certain. I'm not saying it's he's I'm not saying he's running. No. Um and you know, he's 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 a young person. Um he has plenty of time to run in the future, so if he sees a real risk of losing, he might not want to. But it certainly seems to me like the parts of the Republican Party that see Donald Trump as a political liability are setting him up as their alternative. And the main one, although not the only one, the main one is is the Murdoch-owned media, which when I wrote this feature story on DeSantis, I could see the degree to which they are just cranking out yes. DeSantis propaganda night and day, setting him up to win over the loyalty of, of the base. They're being very purposeful about picking what they engage with and what they ignore in this campaign to set him up. And I think the results so far are pretty impressive. I mean, you can say Trump is still leading the polls far and away, but, um, you know, I saw a poll a, a couple months ago that was, I think, 46 to 22. Yeah. Trump at 46 and DeSantis at 22. That was a bit of a high water mark so far for DeSantis, but he has been creeping up and up and up. And in two years out from the nomination, that is not a bad place to be, given that he was down at 1% with everybody else not that long ago. 
You know, you've also identified a phenomenon that I think is worth paying attention to, which is the way that um, the MAGAverse, uh, the media, the social media troll universe um, is very much pro-DeSantis. And I got a really a sense of that when um, I wrote about, well, other people have as well, uh, you know, write about uh, the attack on Disney, uh, going after Disney on, on the gay issues. Yeah. You know, all the flying monkeys come out of the woodwork to defend DeSantis. You can tell that there is a sense of investment in mm-hmm. defending whatever he does or, or reinforcing his narrative. And that that has a very sort of, you know, Trump world feel to it. So, yeah. you know, the, the other day, um, I, I, Ramesh Panuro wrote a, a, a column saying, well, you know, you guys, DeSantis is not a Trump-like candidate. He's just a regular, normal Republican. You have a different take on that, where you argue that DeSantis may be more MAGA than the MAGA king himself. So let's talk about that a little bit. You know, I think R- Ramesh is, is a very, very intelligent person, and I have a lot of respect for his work. But I, so first of all, I think the main way to understand that point of view is to is is to is how do you define a Trump candidate versus a regular Republican candidate? And if and if you think the problem with Trump is his erratic personality and his lack of message discipline, you know, then I think that distinction makes a lot of sense, right? Like someone like Mitch McConnell's grievance with Trump is that he's constantly going off message. He doesn't, he doesn't say the smart thing to help them win. He says, whatever's on his mind, he won't read the, you know, he won't read the card that you hand him. He'll go off half cocked endorsing candidates for races who aren't the best candidate to win. That's probably the single thing that McConnell Hmm. dislikes the most. So if those are the things that that you don't like about Trump, then then DeSantis really is completely different. And, you know, he's, he's your refreshing change. Now, if you're worried about Trump being a threat to democracy and someone who has abused his power, then there really isn't that great of a difference between DeSantis and, and Trump because DeSantis shares a lot of Donald Trump's positions on kind of the role of democracy. And I think people who 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 broke with the party over Trump are also going to probably break with DeSantis because DeSantis has the same or even deeper, more intellectual suspicions of democracy than, than Trump. Mm. So you you start your piece uh, with DeSantis' announcement back in February that private businesses should stop requiring employees to wear masks at work. And, and you describe his, his, his strategy that he's working on his brand of scourge of public health bureaucrats, enemy of woke corporations, and friend of the little guy. That was interesting. You write that both informing content uh, it you know it, it shows some careful planning here. You, you're right. Yeah. As DeSantis spoke, he looked like a man who had been mimicking Donald Trump's speeches in front of the mirror. He performed a series of hand thrusts, which he drew his thumbs together until they were almost touching, then jerked them apart in quick horizontal motions as if he were playing an invisible accordion. So he's actually trying to sort of channel Trump in some ways. Yeah, I think he's trying to do it physically. Physically. I th- I- Physically, I, that, I was describing the gestures there, but I think yeah. that was, I was sort of using that as a stand-in for his yeah. larger mm-hmm. method. And I think when he's looked at Trump and said, "Okay, what is what is Donald Trump giving the base that I can that I have to match or exceed in order to to out uh, compete him for their loyalty?" And it's I think just this relentless opposition to their enemies. He just wants you know this phrase, but he fights. That's constantly used as a justification for Trump, which, ha- which, as I say, you know, contains an implicit confession before the but, right? That okay, there's some things we don't like about him, but 
he fights. And that takes precedence over everything else. So Ron DeSantis is just fighting them all the time, never giving in. And I think an, an important part of this is never breaking ranks with their allies on the right. So Ron DeSantis is not going to say, past a certain point, I won't have anything to do with you, right? He won't draw any lines against the extreme right within his own coalition. In fact, he's he's really wooed them um, assiduously and successfully. So like the far right anti-vax people, you know, even the even some of the kind of January 6th type members of the coalition are really on board with Ron DeSantis. So that's that's one of the most interesting things I think that is that is his proto campaign is, has already produced. Well, you know, you just mentioned that he has deeper suspension of democracy, and I had uh, completely forgotten about the fact that he had written a a book during the Obama years, Dreams from Our Founding Fathers, arguing yep. that Obama and his agenda were inimical to the Constitution and this country's founding ideals. Yeah. So he's actually has gone pretty far in that direction, and you trace back the roots of, of some of his suspicion of, of democratic norms. Well, so this is something I've been arguing for a number of years, and that I think is like the key fact. And this is something I think I've kind of argued a little bit with you, um, Mm. and and maybe we don't exactly agree on it, but I'd be interested to see what what your take is on this. So if if I could just step back a little bit, because I think this is a really Mm -hmm. crucial idea, and I I really want to try to explain this idea as I see it and then get your view on it. Maybe you're not completely on board with, with my analysis of it, but- the American conservative movement has, for generations, believed that the New Deal was a fundamentally unconstitutional event mm-hmm. that ended or threatened freedom as they define it in this country. And they believe that the potential for redistribution is the greatest threat to liberty that exists in American politics. The biggest threat is the idea that the majority is going to gang up on the rich, tax away their wealth, and give it to themselves. And the th- and the possibility that, that will happen is the danger that they have to guard against. In other words, the idea that, that ba- ba- even if it even in the, maybe even especially if it's happening through democratic channels, that's the thing that they can't allow. So that fear has been a persistent. A suspicion of democratic processes that that runs through the right. And I think if you try to understand the difference between the Republican Party and conservative parties in other advanced democracies, it's that those other democracies, the conservative party in Britain and Australia and France and Germany and and on and on, they've reconciled themselves to economic democracy and, and the conservative movement has it. So they have this suspicion of it that I think is an important factor to understand in its willingness to work with an openly authoritarian figure like Donald Trump. If you if you say he's a threat to democracy, well, democracy is something they have suspicions of to begin with. And I think if you want to understand how the Republican Party became prepared for someone like Donald Trump, the conservative movement's long march through the institutions, the way it's driven out the Eisenhower Republicans, the ones who are who are reconciled to the New Deal, and and replace them with people steeped in the tenets of the conservative movement helps you understand how Donald Trump came in there. So the fact that DeSantis wrote a book about this, wrote a book arguing over and over that redistribution is the biggest threat to the Constitution, and that's what we can't allow, I think tells you an enormous amount of his actual principles and his disposition toward democracy. 
Well, there's no question about it that, yes, um, there is that suspicion. I probably have a dozen books around my library making that particular case. So but that was, you know, pre-wokeness, pre, you know, this this current um, f- fear of political mm-hmm. correctness. That was the central uh, conservative critique. And it's funny that you, you were having this conversation now because uh, I think I mentioned on a previous podcast, I'm reading uh, Terry Teachout's absolutely outstanding biography of H.L. Mencken. And of course, Mm -hmm. back in the 1930s, H.L. Mencken was one of the intellectual rights loudest critics of the New Deal. Very, very anti-Roosevelt. In fact, Teachout, who was a conservative, sort of suggests that Mencken suffered from FDR derangement syndrome. But anyone who knows anything about H.L. Mencken knows that there are two relevant streams here. Number one was very militant anti-New Deal, anti-redistribution, but yep. also very hostile to democracy. Made no bones about the fact right. that he thought that democracy was a ridiculous form of government and any system of government that gave power to the lower classes was in- inherently corrupt. And I think he described democracy as the organized hatreds of the lower classes. Mm-hmm. There's some very specific roots there uh, to all of that. So this brings us to DeSantis, um, yep. and, and and now it's not just redistribution, because now this has morphed into a variety of other things. You had a piece, uh, well, it was just last week. Let's talk about this this uh, his war with Disney, because I get asked all the time, you know, on some of the cable shows, like, what is DeSantis thinking? What are these Republicans thinking? Don't they think this is going too far? Yep. And you described it as, this is what post-Trump authoritarianism looks like. Um, and politically, though, it's working for DeSantis. And whether you agree with it or not, I think it's important to acknowledge that there's an yeah. appeal to this kind of post-Trump authoritarianism, isn't there? There is. And, you know, I think what makes it so threatening is that it can be a very effective and popular uh, way to do it. Because if you're a Republican who's attacking Disney, that makes you seem more populist, right? And more right. Um, and, and less extreme to a lot of people than other Republicans. The real political vulnerability Republicans have is this idea that they're on the on the side of the rich and corporations. So when you're fighting with a corporation, that was one of Donald Trump's tricks. He seemed like he wasn't a regular old Republican for the rich. He was he was hated by rich people and corporations. So I think it's actually it's a it's a beneficial message, but but what makes it so uh, effective is that it's not it's not really an anti-corporate policy. It's it's a it's threatening the corporations to stay politically on sides. Right. It's he's saying you can keep all your special privileges um, as long as you don't denounce me or my ideas. If you become my political opponent, then all of a sudden all these policies that help you that I've been in favor of all along and in DeSantis's case help right into law. Now I'm going to come out and treat those as corporate welfare and, and, and take them down. And 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 that's actually pretty uh, a pretty dangerous policy. That's basically how. Putin operates in Russia. Now, it's not the only tool that Putin has to cement his power, but it's but it's an important part of the authoritarian playbook, and it's pretty dangerous. Well, what do you make of the fascination with Viktor Orban of Hungary, which is, yeah. you know sounds like I mean, you know, or- Orban, you know, has has not put in place you know totalitarian rules, but he does. Um, work the system in this particular way, you know, providing favors for uh, corporations and individuals that support him, um, disincentives for corporations and individuals that oppose him. So, I mean, this is, this is an interesting evolution. (laughs) Interesting is an underpowered word there. Um, But, but, but this, this, this evolution of the Republican party from being, you know, pro-business, pro-free market 
to yeah. sort of going, um, yeah, you know, Victor Orban's got a point here about these evil corporations. And, you know, let's let, let's go after these evil corporations. Yeah. You know, one of the things that makes this whole topic so so difficult to explain to people is that I think most Americans tend to think of democracy and authoritarianism in in binary terms, right? So if yeah. we if we don't have a democracy, you just have troops, you know, marching through the streets. Whereas I think scholars understand that it's a continuum, and you can be on a democratic backsliding continuum, and there's a long way to go between where we are and Hungary, and then from Hungary to Russia, and then from Russia to you know to to Stalinist Soviet Union or, or Hitler's Germany. Yeah. And, and even though there's a long way to go, you know, all those changes are, are really important and really dangerous. So Orban's Hungary is not as authoritarian as, as Putin's Russia, but it's, but it's still a pretty nasty place. And it's not what I think most of us would, would define as a true democracy. And what's really scary is that an increasing number of conservatives basically are saying, yes, that is our idea of democracy. That's, that's exactly the system we want to have. So let's talk about um, Vladimir Putin. Uh You had a very interesting piece, uh, Trump, Putin, and the Paradox of Propaganda, where you argue that both Trump and Putin are sort of trapped by their own lies, that Trump is is trapped by the disinformation of his media ecosystem and the lies that he's invented about um, election fraud. And, and, And you argue that that's inhibiting Trump's own powers. How? What do you mean by that? So one of the reasons that Trump is so frustrating to his allies is that they feel like he's been ineffective in a lot of ways. And one of the reasons he's so ineffective is that he really lacks, um, you know, an apparatus to get himself accurate information and and to assess the situation. Honestly, he, he actually believes what he sees on Fox news, even though Fox news is trying to sort of propagandize on his, on his own behalf. So he has always been kind of trapped in the conservative message ecosystem, which I think has sort of lost the thread a long time ago to, to be able to serve as an effective propaganda apparatus because the people within the Republican Party have all decided that they, they are going to actually believe what, what, they, what they see on Fox and what they read only yeah. within conservative media and they're going to completely disregard the mainstream media. So I, I think just a, just a general feature, I, I, I wasn't listing a lot of specific examples, but a general feature of Trump's um, incompetence has been his his inability to actually go outside of the conservative media ecosystem and seek out truthful information. Yeah, so and w- when you set out to brainwash others, you end up brainwashing yourself. The false world you create drives out the real one. And then you connect the dots to Vladimir Putin. His war on Ukraine, a pretty good example of that, right? You create your own bubble. You'll listen to what only what you want to hear. And suddenly you find yourself in a completely different reality than the one you were expecting. Exactly right. Putin was trying to, you know, control the public, but he ended up fooling himself. You know, I can I can also add one other point here um, that I didn't get to in this piece, but I, I think it's worth thinking a little bit about because a lot of people on the left have been looking at this problem for a, a long time and trying to figure out what to do about it. And and I think the answer, the answer some people have is is sort of we need our own Fox News, we need our own response. So an implicit argument I was trying to make in this piece, but maybe I'll lay out more explicitly here with you, is that there's a real danger when you do that. You think you're making your own Fox News um, that can that can get your side of the story out. But if you do that, the danger is you'll really end up trapping yourself and it'll backfire. So that's that's a good weapon to use if you 
wants to have a kind of a mirror image of conservative politics where you have a kind of you know left-wing politics that's unable to to think and adjust to new information and just you know just hammer straight ahead with its own premises and disregard any evidence that you're failing but if you if you want to have a, a real liberal politics in the American tradition of a liberalism that can learn and adjust to new information and sometimes change course when things aren't working, then then you have to be careful of a propaganda apparatus. So the left does not have anything remotely like the Trump world propaganda ecosystem, and I don't want to be misunderstood here. But the you know to a certain extent they have created a bubble. Progressives yep. do live in a bubble. In fact, I remember, you know, many years ago thinking that, you know, one of the most interesting things about debating progressives on university campuses was that conservatives had an advantage because many of the progressives had never encountered a conservative idea. Yep. That you could go your whole life reading the New York Times or public radio or, you know, attending classes and never really read a book or an article by anyone that fundamentally disagreed with you. And so I, I do think that there's a large uh, segment of the population that right now is sitting watching the midterm elections and has no idea that that urban crime, uh, the border, I don't know about inflation, but a lot of these other issues, how they are playing um, in the rest of the country and, and, and why, in fact, that they are they're hearing a completely different narrative than the people who may determine the outcome of this election. So can I say I half sure. agree with you on that? Yeah, sure. I certainly agree that there is a, a progressive bubble. I think you can certainly find people, especially on campuses, people who you know get a lot of their information on social media, self-curated news sources are really deluding themselves in exactly the same way you, the conservative movement has been doing on news for a long, long time. I think the New York Times, while I, I think you can make a good critique of its having liberal biases in a lot of areas, especially culture. I, you know, I don't think it's anything like the conservative. No, media, right? no, they, no. They're no. bringing a lot of bad news to the Democrats. Yeah. Let me revise my, I shouldn't have thrown in the New York Times into that particular list, but there are, you know, a, a series of entities that are safe places for people on the left where you can go yes. and, and never really be troubled by any alternative, you know, I mean, you know, whether it's, boy, this, I know I'm about to poke the bear here, but, you know, I was listening on on a public radio show where they were discussing the controversy about, uh, you know, trans athletes. And at the end of that report, you would have no idea that there was another point of view. Yep. <laughs> you would have no idea that, in fact, this is a disputed issue, that there are people who are arguing in good faith about athletic competition, that many female athletes have a different point of view. No concept whatsoever yeah. that there was another side to it. And I thought, wow, this is a bubble right here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I do think that one of the one of the contested questions that I was trying to engage with in this piece is, is this effort by a lot of people on the left to remake the mainstream media into right. the mirror image of Fox News, right? I mean, I, I think the kind of story that you, you're you observing there, they want to make the norm in national public radio and, and New York Times instead of something that you encounter from time to time, that would just be what you encounter all the time. That's really the question that that is engaging the left on in terms of the media. So that's that's the warning I was trying to make. So let's go back to this uh, this bubble that Vladimir Putin has created around himself right after this. This is Charlie Sykes, and I want to tell you about Famous Smoke Shop. A good cigar is a reward. It's a tradition. At Famous Smoke Shop, they know all about it, American-owned and independent. 
Famous Smoke is your neighborhood cigar shop, no matter where your neighborhood is. As a matter of fact, Famous Smoke Shop was recently named the best place to buy cigars online by both Cool Material and Cigar World. Now in their 83rd year, Famous Smoke continues to offer the authentic cigar shop experience, decades worth of cigar knowledge, a huge selection of premium cigars, and low prices that every cigar enthusiast will love. Famous Smoke Shop offers a huge selection of over a thousand brands to choose from. You'll find incredible deals on everyday cigars and highly rated classics, including Romeo, Monte Cristo, Acid, Macanudo, Oliva, and Fuente. Plus, every purchase is backed by their 30-day Famous Freshness Guarantee. So, if you want your cigars fresh and delivered fast, it has to be Famous Smoke Shop. I receive my cigars from Famous Smoke Shop, and I love how simple it is to purchase. And when there's a special occasion, I love to be able to go to my humidor and find one of the special cigars. It's spring here in Wisconsin, and I have to tell you, there's nothing nicer than going out on a nice, cool spring evening and lighting up one of these cigars. I don't have to do it on a daily basis, but knowing that they're there, knowing how easy it is to replace them, is one of the things that I really look forward to these days. So here's an exclusive offer for my listeners. To save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more, go to famous-smoke.com. That's famous-smoke.com and use code BULLWORK at checkout to save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more. You'll get your favorite cigars delivered direct from their humidor to yours. That's promo code BULLWORK for $20 off your purchase at famous-smoke.com. Great cigar deals only at famous-smoke.com. And remember to use promo code BULWORK. Okay, we're back. So Putin wound up believing his own lies, including apparently thinking that that Ukraine was going to collapse immediately. The Ukrainians would welcome Russians as liberators. But right. as you point out, even though that's been a, a fiasco, the propaganda has worked and is working. Uh, Russian, the Russian public seems to continue to be strongly behind the war and are unprepared to handle the defeat that he's going to deliver them. So, I mean, we're actually seeing in real time the effect of marinating a population of millions of people in this kind of disinformation and propaganda. It does work. And I guess I, I'm yep. a little bit surprised because, you know, we had been assured over and over again that there was no way in the modern world with modern communications that uh, a country like Russia could could create its own reality. But Vladimir Putin's showing how it works, that it can be done. That it can be done right. And, and I think that's also a lesson that you can apply towards Hungary and Orban's yeah. election. I mean, he understands that being able to control the media gives gives you an overwhelming advantage that that whatever avenues people have to go around the main media sources just aren't very powerful compared to what's just on their televisions day in and day out. So you reference in your article, and I, I did not dive into this, this, what they called it, the CNN watching experiment where yeah. they, they took a group of conservative Republicans who were devoted watchers of Fox news. Um, and they, these are people who watch Fox news seven hours a week. And as part of this experiment, they had them watch CNN uh, yeah. Two political scientists did this experiment, and they found the effect was absolutely massive, that the Fox watchers opposed to CNN became more likely to believe things that were actually true. Right. <laughs> you know, that other countries were having more success containing COVID than the United States. They were less likely to believe lies, um, like the claim that Joe Biden was happy when police officers get shot 
Right. And they seem to have come around to the conclusion that Fox News might be concealing coverage of Trump's transgressions. So right, what, did you, what right. did you glean from this study? I, th- I thought it was a really brilliant design. because can deprogram people. Right. What we're trying to figure out is how does, you know, being exposed to Fox News all the time change your thinking, right? How does it convert you into becoming a, you know, a ditto head or a, a Trump cultist? And they sort of did it in reverse. We're going to take people who have already been converted and and deconvert them and then measure the change. So we're we're just going to kind of reverse engineer the process and and see how much of a change there was. And like you said, there was there was a really big one to the point where the subjects in this experiment now agreed that Fox News would not report on bad things Donald Trump did which is a pretty devastating admission. It is. Yeah. I mean, so the ability of these propaganda outlets to to not only put their spin on the news, but to just make hostile news stories disappear completely by just ignoring them is a really important part of how they work. You know, you just, you so tightly narrate for people, what stories they're going to find out about, and you, and, and because people are curating their own news, because they're willing members of an Orwellian society, you don't have to have the methods that you had in 1984, where there's no existing record. Right, the the people will just simply choose not to look at the New York Times or not not to look at CNN. Right, um, yeah. they'll do it yeah, to themselves. So, I mean, going back to the, the the bias of the media, you know, you argue that, um, you know, one of the central problems of American politics is the result of the fact that Republicans control a propaganda apparatus and Democrats don't. So, yeah, I mean, even with, you know, the bias that you have in the media, the reality is, is that, you know, you still do get critical material about uh, Democrats in, in the New York, New York Times. Um, and you're right that conservative media gives its audience a picture of Republican presidents not terribly different than the coverage of Putin. In Russian state media, yeah. So, but you know, how much of this, and this is sort of a one-off point, but how much of this is sort of top-down manipulation of public uh, opinion, and how much of this is, in fact, this consumer choice? Because I'm sure you've experienced this as well. There are a lot of people that just don't want to hear or read bad news about their guys. Yeah, you know, um, if I you know talk about, hey, you know if we run a story or I have a podcast about, you know, why is Biden so unpopular? Why is he failing to, uh, to make this case? Mm-hmm. I will get dozens of emails from people saying, you are the problem, Charlie, because you are bashing Joe Biden. You are, you know, you need to stop doing this. Your job is to know. My job is to tell you the truth, what I actually think about it. But there yeah. is a sizable uh, group of people, both on the right and on the left, maybe it's not the uh, equivalent, but it, it, it is sizable, that actually wants the media to be a safe space for them. Right. And I think you made this point that there is this push to the media, stop telling us, you know, both sides, stop giving us uncomfortable truths. Why can't you be more like Fox News? I mean, and that's kind of a bottom up kind of thing as well, isn't it? I think you're right. Um, you know, maybe I've, I've, just managed to condition my audience over a long enough period of time to expect me to, to, to criticize, you know, the left from time to time that, um, anyone who's going to be upset about that is long gone. So maybe I'm, I'm fortunate that, that way, but I definitely agree that that dynamic exists in mass. So, you know, to the extent that the mainstream media is is more in touch with commercial pressures of its audience. I think it is going to be pushed in a more in a more part- yeah. partisan and more liberal direction. 
So let me ask you uh, about something that's happening that um, I have to admit I'm I am still a little bit puzzled by, mm-hmm. which is the return of the 1970s on gay issues. Yeah. Uh, this this push to smear everyone they disagree with as a pedophile. You know, and the reason I'm, I'm a little bit puzzled by it is, I mean, I, I understood how the issue of transgenderism and uh, transgender athletes was going to be a wedge issue. There's no question right. about it. But it seemed like it slingshotted around that rather quickly to go right at gay rights in general. And this whole notion now uh, that, you know, male teachers might be groomers and pedophiles, it, it, it seems like something that, you know, that we had that a lot of us thought we had moved past decades ago. And yet. You have uh, leading Republicans who have seized on this as a key issue. Ron DeSantis, the Tom Cottons, the Ted Cruz's. And we saw this on display. So what is the return of sort of the pedophilia panic? What does that tell you? Where does that come from? It's a really interesting question. I think a clear cause, one cause, I, I won't say the only cause, is just the fact that you know, Ron DeSantis was following his always attack, never defend, never apologize playbook with his don't say gay bill. And his spokesperson, Christina Pusha, um, was just kind of casting about for lines of attack against critics of the bill. And if you actually look at the way she was developing this argument on Twitter, she was doing it as a kind of, I'm going to take the left's arguments and use them against you, right? It's like, I'm going to take the worst bad faith argument that the other side uses and just turn them against everyone on the other side, because I don't have to follow any principles. And if anyone on the other side um, is unethical, that gives me license to be unethical. So it was kind of this winking, I know this isn't true, but I'm going to say it against you anyway, because you're bad people, right? I, I get to call you guys groomers and it's in a sort of uh, assume that's your motivation. But I think that quickly went from being an ironic um, uh, attack to like to an actual attack. Yeah. Um, and, and, and they, and they really excited people who, who revived, as you note, this kind you of hate hearing attack on, on gays. And I, and I think, and I think another part of the explanation has to be that the Republican party made a strategic decision um, a few years ago that the gay issue was no longer cutting in its favor. Remember in 2004, this, this was like the number one message Bush used to win the pivotal state of Ohio was gay marriage. And, and Democrats were really afraid to talk about this issue. This issue. It moved left fast enough that, that at some point the Republicans said, we're not going to talk about this anymore. But you had a big chunk of the right that never really changed their mind. They just stopped hearing about it from their leaders. And now all of a sudden, DeSantis says this, and this activates that segment of the right. So all of a sudden, you know, this, there's, there's a big, there's a big market for this on the right. And and now, and now it's back. Well, I'm, I'm interested to know whether you think something else is happening and let's do this right after this. Do you hate hearing ads? If so, I've got a solution for you. Join Bulwark Plus where members enjoy ad-free editions of this show and all the podcasts in our Bulwark network, like Beg to Differ with Mona Charon and The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell. There's also the member-only podcast, The Secret Show, and The Next Level with Tim Miller. You can give a Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to thebulwark.com slash charlie to claim your free trial today. This offer is exclusively for listeners of this podcast, The Bulwark Podcast. That is thebulwark.com slash charlie. Okay, so we are, we're back with Jonathan Chait. I agree with everything you just said about uh, the reemergence of the gay issue. But 
the thing that's really striking to me is once again, how you see conspiracy theories that had once been confined to the far reaches of the fever swamp, the QAnon folks, now right. becoming very, very mainstream. I mean, there was at one time when I think the expectation was that the Republican establishment or the conservative establishment would keep those conspiracy theories, those nut jobs, you know, the batshit crazy stuff, would, would keep it, you know, in, on the fringes. Well, now, obviously, there are no more uh, guardrails. We've talked about this. We've seen this before. And so you have this blending and merging of these extreme uh, Pizzagate-type conspiracy theories with mainstream Republican politics. But then QAnon also doesn't come out of nowhere, does it? And I was listening to somebody the other night, um, you know, make the case that, you know, these... This whole notion of, you know, you know, alien global elites coming for your children has very deep roots back in the Middle Ages, right? It was uh, one of the smears was the Jews wanted to drink the blood of Christian children. And that was right. updated by the protocols of the elders of Zion, which was in its own way kind of adapted and twisted by QAnon. And so and here we are. And it's like this is this is, you know, for, the, for those of us who said, you know, it's bad and it's going to get worse. It's gotten way worse. <laughs> That's right. I mean, done. you know, Richard Hofstadter would tell you that this is a, a durable tradition in an American thought, the paranoid style and, and, mm -hmm. and the belief in these um, conspiracies um, that, that operate completely invisibly to the naked eye are, are controlling the world. Um, and, you know, I think the, the thing that people tend to forget when they cite Hofstadter is that he was writing in his own day about what we now call the conservative movement, yeah. right? He was writing about Phyllis Schlafly. He was writing about the Goldwater movement. He was writing about the people who were then a fringe within the Republican Party, but then later took it over. So I just think it's 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 relatively straightforward that you're go going to get that paranoid style as a recurrent part of Republican politics once that movement takes over the party and, and eliminates his competition. Yeah, and I and I think that that's going to be an ongoing problem, and and I, and I sense that there's a certain inability to control it. Um, that uh, you know we we keep just you know talking about Donald Trump and Trumpism, right. and yet you you watch some of the things that are happening, and they've taken on a life of their own. And I think that I actually think that Donald Trump understands this that there's a kind of the prairie fire that uh, has gotten out of control, and he understands that. He's also kind of trapped by the forces that he's unleashed and that if he tries to pull back, like, for example, by, you know, openly embracing vaccinations, he runs a risk of losing the movement that he set in motion. That's exactly right. And that's just to circle back to the what, what we started talking about, which is Ron DeSantis, that the DeSantis strategy is unlike other Republicans who have tried to fight Trump by saying this goes too far or that goes too far, DeSantis is not saying anything goes too far. He will not draw a line against any extreme faction within the party. His whole strategy is based on refusing to draw a line. So I think um, this continued degeneration of the party and the movement are, are inevitable if he becomes the nominee. That's that's the whole strategy he's following. No, I, I agree. Jonathan Che, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. As always, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Charlie. Really enjoyed it. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.